So again, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52 this morning. And the key truth that we're going to see in this text is this. Jesus' faithfulness assures our growth and our fruitfulness. Let me say that again. This is the key truth to get out of this text this morning, and it is this. Jesus' faithfulness assures our growth and fruitfulness. So let's see that now. This is the word of the Lord, verses 41 to 52 of Luke chapter 2. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as we come to this text this morning, a great question to help tune our hearts to what it is saying to us is this. How do you react when God doesn't meet your expectations? How do you react when God doesn't meet your expectations? This is a, a timely question to, to think about on Christmas morning. Uh, think of the way sometimes either even now at whatever stage of life you're in or certainly when you're a child, think of the way you feel when that one gift you were hoping to find under the tree wasn't there. You unwrap gift after gift and you're like, maybe it's in this one. And then, you know, all the papers strewn about and the thing you were really expecting or really hoping to get, you know, you dropped all the hints. It was on every wish list, but you didn't get it. You got tons of other stuff, but that one thing, it casts a shadow, right? The absence of what you were expecting can cast a shadow over everything else good that you received. You can't see the goodness you have because you're focused on what you don't have, what you were expecting to get. And we do that, not just when we're opening presents, but we do that all the time in our relationship with God. We're not likely to say out loud that we think God has been unfaithful or has failed to be good to us, or, and we're not likely to say, oh, God just hasn't met my expectations. Because if you say it out loud, you realize, like, wow, that's really arrogant. But we feel that. We feel that way in our hearts, and because we don't say it, it comes out sideways in all these other ways. We do react to it. Sometimes we'll complain and we'll grumble about our lot in life, and if you complain and grumble, the reason that's such a big deal as a sin is because if God is sovereign, if by his providence he reigns over all the details of your life, when you grain and grumble, or complain and grumble, ultimately you're taking it up with him, whether you realize it or not. Sometimes we'll assume, well, maybe I don't have what I expected because I did something wrong. And so you spend all your time examining your heart, dissecting it, looking for what did I do wrong to not get what I want. And other times we react to this just by trying harder and assuming that, well, if I want something in life, if I want my expectations to be met, I just got to do it myself. And so either way, however we react to that feeling, 
we often fail to see God's faithfulness to us because we're focused on what we don't have instead of looking at what he has given us in Christ. And so as we come to this story at the end of Luke 2, what we'll see is that God is faithful even when, and in fact, especially when, he doesn't meet our expectations and we don't know where to find him because we're looking in the wrong places. Often it is then that we see how faithful Jesus is as our Savior and we see that his faithfulness assures, it guarantees our growth and our fruitfulness in him. So let's see that as we look at the Father's faithful Son in Luke 2, verses 41 through 52. As we look at these verses closely and you think about this story, it's probably one of the first times you thought about it in connection with Christmas. But it's interesting, it usually gets kind of lopped off after the nativity story. Um, we, we focus on the angels and the shepherds, and that's what the carols are about. But Luke is very intentional in putting this story as the climax of the close of the first two chapters of his gospel. It's a distinct section. And he picks this story uh, for very significant reasons. Remember how he opened the gospel. The first four verses were his mission and purpose statement. And he said, I'm writing everything I've written to give you certainty about what you know about Jesus. I want you to have assurance in your faith. I want you to bring your doubts into the light of God's word so your faith would grow and not wither in the darkness. And so he selected this story, and he's the only gospel writer to pick a story from Jesus' life that happens after his birth and before his ministry begins when he's 30 or 33. So this is a very unique story in the Bible. Here we see Jesus in the years of his youth. And this story explains how the child who was laid in the manger could become the one who would grow up and ascend the Mount of the Cross and die in our place. Without this story, we would not fully understand what it means for Jesus to be the Father's faithful son. And so this story is actually at the heart of what we celebrate today on Christmas. Because what we celebrate is not so much Jesus' birthday as the the miracle of the incarnation, the word of God made flesh to dwell among us and to live the perfect life that we failed to live in our place. Now, as Luke picks up in verse 41, he begins by explaining that Mary and Joseph, again, as we saw last time, they were very faithful in their devotion to the Lord and in their worship. And he explains that every year at the Feast of the Passover, they would go up to Jerusalem, and they would observe that feast. Just like you and I, we have our Christmas traditions. Well, they had their Passover traditions. They would go as a whole family to Jerusalem. And God had commanded all Israelite men, they needed to go to Jerusalem for three feasts every year, for Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. And the fact that Mary and Jesus went with Joseph, the whole family went, showed that they were all in to worship. They recognized this was a gift. They didn't just send Joseph, but everybody went to worship the Lord. They were a family that recognized they got to go and worship God on this day. And they delighted in the week-long celebration of God's love and justice in rescuing his people from Egypt. They did that together as a family for the whole week. And then after that week-long Passover feast, it was time for them to go home on the angles here. And so Mary and Joseph, they're getting everyone ready to go. And at this point, they're expecting something of Jesus. And it's a very simple expectation. He should be where he's supposed to be. They're going home. And they didn't just go as their little family of three but they're going with a group of people from their town in a caravan. Because in those days, as you would walk the roads, it was safer to travel in with numbers. 
You'd go in a big group. One, it just made it more enjoyable. You could sing the psalms together. You could help care for each other's kids and livestock. But also, if there were animals or robbers along the way, they were much less likely to mess with you if you were a large group. So they were in a caravan, and they expected Jesus to be somewhere in the caravan. Maybe Mary and Joseph were not walking side by side, and Joseph was thinking, I'm sure he's with Mary. Or Mary was, and Mary was thinking, oh, I'm sure he's with Joseph. Or maybe they were together, and they thought, well, he must be with his friends and acquaintances. It was a big group. But either way, they expect that Jesus is where he's supposed to be, in the caravan, on the way home, after celebrating Passover. But after that first day, as night is falling, and they're making camp, and they're like, all right, you know, it's time to get together, have dinner. Uh, they've probably traveled about 20 miles at this point, and they realize, wait a minute, where's, where's Jesus? He's not with you? No, I thought he was with you. And then they look around with their relatives and their acquaintances, and they still can't find him. Jesus didn't meet their expectations. He's not where they thought he was. He's not with them, and they can't find him. Jesus, Luke tells us, had stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents didn't know it. And so at this point, you can imagine the panic that would set in for Mary and Joseph. If you've ever left a child behind anywhere, you can immediately relate to this text. Um, and, and again, this isn't like they hop back in the minivan and drive 15 minutes back to the community center because you left your kid at church. This is, they walk 20 miles all day. So they have to walk all the way back the next day, sleep through that night somehow, go back to Jerusalem, and then Luke explains they spent another day, a third day, searching high and low all throughout the town. Jerusalem wasn't exactly a metropolis, but it was still a big city. There are lots of places a young boy could get lost. And so finally, they find Jesus, and they find him at the temple. Now the temple, again, this is a massive work of architecture. And so you can imagine a 12-year-old boy walking around admiring all the columns and the architecture and watching the priests lead sacrifices and all sorts of things. That's not what Jesus is doing. When they find Jesus, he's sitting with the teachers of the law, and these are men who were the top students and scholars of God's word. They were Israelite, the Israelites' religious leaders in teaching the scriptures, and Jesus is sitting with them, and he's listening to them talk about the things of the Lord, and he's asking them questions, and he's engaging with them, because the teachers, they would use back and forth question and answer formats to train up young people in the ways of the Lord, to teach them scripture. And as a 12-year-old, Jesus was on the verge of becoming a full-fledged member of the synagogue. That would happen for a young man when he turned 13. And so when a boy was 12, it was very common for his father to bring him alongside of him in all of his religious involvement, to bring him to synagogue, to hear the word of God, to bring him to worship, to learn how these things work, to learn how to use the means of grace. And so, this was common for 12-year-old boys to be at the heart of what God's people were doing in worship. Yet here he is, not with his earthly father, but in the temple with the teachers of the law. And people are amazed by what's happening. They're amazed that this 12-year-old boy, who's not even a full-fledged member of the synagogue, is participating so lively and so well with thoughtfulness in this discussion. It's not, it's sometimes people say, well, here Jesus is correcting the teachers and he's telling them what everything means. No, he's not correcting them. He's not precocious standing over the teachers of the law. He's participating with them and in a way that demonstrates a wisdom and a zeal beyond his years. He goes beyond what they would expect a 12-year-old to be able to do when talking about the Bible. And so Mary and Joseph, when they show up, they're not just amazed at like, wow, look how well Jesus is doing in this conversation. They are astonished. Because what they've been thinking is that their boy is hopelessly lost, 
somewhere away from his home. They've been afraid as they've been looking for him that they would find him scared and alone, that they wouldn't find him at all, or worse, that they would find that something awful had happened to him. But instead, they have found that he's in his element, so to speak. He's here, and he doesn't seem to be panicked or worried at all. He is with the teachers of the law. He's not lost. He's not scared. He's engaged in what he's doing. And so even though the angels had revealed so much to Mary and Joseph, this is not what they expected. This is not what they expected to find. In fact, as you look at what Mary says to Jesus in verse 48, her words are actually a kind of rebuke. In asking, why have you treated us so? She's implying that Jesus has mistreated her and Joseph. And she explains, you know, your father and I, we've been searching for you in great distress. You've caused us anxiety and anguish. This has been a stressful three days for us. And as we hear Mary pour out her mother's heart to Jesus here, recall Simeon's prophecy over her, because it rings true here. As we saw in verse 35 last week, Simeon said, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, Mary. In other words, Jesus fulfilling the Father's mission for him would cause pain for Mary. She'd watch her son suffer. And yet here, she goes through the pain of her son not being where she thought he would be, not meeting her expectations, and that scared her. And so Jesus' faithfulness to his Father in heaven is creating anguish for Mary, his mother on earth, in this moment. So then, in verse 49, Jesus responds to Mary. And now remember, this is the very first time that Jesus speaks in Luke's gospel. In fact, it's the first time since the incarnation that Jesus speaks in the whole Bible. Who he is here is very important because it shows that Jesus knows who he is and he knows what he's come to do. He asked Mary why she and Joseph were looking for him. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I need to be in my father's house? And he's not being dismissive or coy or snarky here, as we often do when we become 12 and we start learning sarcasm and irony. That's not what Jesus is doing. His point is that he is the Son of God. And as the Son of God, he belongs there in the temple at his Father's house, intent on doing his Father's will, speaking of the things of his Father's business and his word. There was no need to scour all of Jerusalem. You want to know where Jesus is? He belonged in the temple. This is who he is, the Father's Son. And this is what he came to do, his Father's will. And so in saying this, he is gently correcting Mary's rebuke when she said, your father and I have been searching for you. Yes, Joseph is Jesus' legal, adoptive, earthly father. But God the Father is Jesus' true father. And his relationship with the Father in heaven shapes and takes priority over everything else he will do and over every other relationship. Even when Mary and Joseph could not find Jesus, even when he did not meet their expectations, he knew who he was and he was doing what he was supposed to do. He was doing the will of the Father because he is the Father's faithful son. He's making it clear to, to Mary. He did not come to meet our expectations, however good they may be, however right they may seem to us. He came to do his Father's will, and that is very good news for you and me this Christmas morning. It's the news we need most, because as Jesus will go on to say later in John chapter 6, verses 38 and 40, the Father's will that he came to do is to seek and to save God's people, those who have gone astray in their sin, us, all of us. 
and he would do everything necessary to raise us up and give us everlasting life in God's presence. That's the will of his father that he came to do. But Mary and Joseph, Luke explains, they don't comprehend everything Jesus is saying about who he is and what he came to do in his father's house and all of these things. Angels had told them very much about Jesus and his identity and his mission, but it still took time for all of that to sink into their hearts and for them to understand. That's why Luke notes in verse 51 and earlier in chapter 2, verse 18, that Mary has been treasuring up all of these things that have been happening in her heart, and she's pondering them. She's pondering the things that Jesus said and that were said about him and the things that he is doing and that are happening to him because her faith in Jesus not only as her son, but as her king, is growing over time. And that is key for you and me to see. Because when you become a Christian, yes, you receive and you rest upon Jesus alone by faith. You trust him. You trust that he is who he says he is. You trust that he has done what he has said he has done on the cross and through the empty tomb. And you trust that he is the king who died in your place and who has risen again to give you life by his spirit and who will come again to make all things new. But you don't understand what all of that means. You didn't when you first believed. You don't right now. You're continuing to grow in your faith, just like Mary. And the reason we can grow in our faith like Mary and grow in our assurance that all these things are true over time is because Jesus is perfectly faithful. The basis for our relationship with God is not your faith. It's not your knowledge or your performance. And it's certainly not your perfection. If your relationship with God depended on you in any way, in an ultimate sense, then it would, you would have to be perfect. You can never fail. You can never fall short, and that would crush you, which is why we've had our congregational response this Advent series. What is your only comfort and hope in life and death? That I am not my own, but I belong in body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus Christ? He is the Father's perfectly faithful son. He has been perfectly faithful in your place and in mine. <clears throat> we can admit when we're wrong and when we've fallen short because he is always true. We can struggle and fail because he, that's not really true, as if we really are defined by our efforts instead of by Jesus' faithfulness. And why is that, do you think? Why do we live as if it's all on us and as if we belong to ourselves and not Jesus? I think in part, one reason might be because we don't think about Jesus' faithfulness in very concrete terms. We think about it as a very abstract idea. But remember what Paul said in Philippians 2. Jesus came and he humbled himself, becoming human like us, even as a servant, and he was obedient fully to the point of death, even death on a cross. And you likely know that. You likely know that verse. But what this story does in Luke 2 is it zooms in on one step Jesus took on that way of faithful obedience to the cross. And it helps us see how real his faithfulness is. Because again, return to what Mary implied. Son, why have you treated us like this? If what Mary said was what happened, that Jesus had mistreated her and Joseph, had dishonored her, he would have broken the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. That's a big deal. Because if Jesus broke that commandment, then Jesus sinned. And if Jesus sinned, then he cannot die in our place and rescue us from our sins. And so Luke makes it very clear in verse 51 that Jesus goes back down with them to Nazareth. And he was submissive to them. 
Not just in going home when they said, hey, it's time to go home, but in all things. There was no sin here because he was not dishonoring Mary and Joseph. He was honoring his father in heaven. And out of that, he also honors Mary and Joseph here, even though they don't fully understand what it means for him to be the father's faithful son. But Jesus would continue to grow and be made perfect in his obedience, in this in observance of the fifth commandment, and in every point of the law. And that's why Luke closes with verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. For another 18 or so years, day in and day out of ordinary life, Jesus will be faithful until we see him appear again on the pages of the gospel and begin his ministry. But he lived that lifetime of perfect faithfulness in our place that this day we have, may have life in him. Listen to how later in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews expands on the theme of Jesus being the Father's faithful son. Hebrews says this in chapter three, verses one through six. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly, heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we verses our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So these verses in Hebrews explain what the Advent season and Christmas are all about. These verses invite me and they invite you, they invite us all this morning to come and behold Christ our King, the Father's faithful Son, and to see that he is faithful in his Father's house. We saw in this story, he was faithful in the temple, his Father's house, as a 12-year-old boy. He was faithful in obeying his Father's will every step of the way of his life, observing the fifth commandment and all the others. And this is important for us to see because when, like Mary and Joseph, Jesus doesn't meet your expectations and you don't know where to find him in your life. These verses tell us where to look. You look at the Father's house because there you will see the Father's faithful son doing all the Father's will for your redemption. And where is the Father's house today? It's not in Jerusalem. It's right here. We are the Father's house. We are being built up because of the work of the Son and the presence of the Spirit. We are being built up as the temple, as the house of our God, and the Son is faithful over this house still today and until he comes again. He assures you as his beloved and redeemed child that you will grow and you will bear fruit. That was the beauty of John 15, our assurance of pardon. If you abide in Christ and he in you and he has put his word in your heart, which he's been using Luke 1 and 2 to do this Advent season, he will do all of that to bear fruit in your life for the glory of his Father. And we may struggle to see that. It may be hard to find because it doesn't meet our expectations. But that does not mean Jesus is not faithful. It just means we have to keep looking. And so this Christmas morning and this week of holidays and celebrations, I encourage you to take time and ask this question. How have you grown because of Jesus' faithfulness? How have you grown because of Jesus' faithfulness? You may not have time to ask that question today. That's okay. Take time this week to ask it of yourself, to ask it with your family, to ask it with your friends, but, but create time to look back 
on this year, 2022, and even years past, and look at the ways you have grown in your life because of Jesus' faithfulness to you. Look at the life of our church, and as you look, behold Jesus' faithfulness in growing you and helping you bear fruit for the Father's glory. This is where the best news you can ever hear will be found. You won't find it on TV, but you'll find it in the Father's house when you look there and see the faithful Son. And if you're not yet sure what you think about Jesus, if you're not a believer, this question is still for you. Are there ways you're more open to Jesus now than you were when this year started? Perhaps God has been at work in your life this year, and he might be showing you that he is far, far better than you expected, far more rich in love and kindness. Let us recognize Jesus' faithfulness. It assures us that we will, over time, grow and bear fruit as we abide in him. And this Christmas morning, as we celebrate, may we focus on what we have. We have the Father's love because we have the Father's faithful Son who has filled us with his spirit and made us the Father's house. Amen.